Take your Bible, if you will, and open it to the book of Psalms, Psalm chapter 46. Psalm chapter 46. Martin Luther is one of the key figures in church history. You know this. A man mildly used by God to bring the Reformation to the church. Well, the year is 1527. That specific year for Martin Luther proved to be one of the most difficult years of his life. He was 44 years old. He had only been married two years. And after 10 demanding years of leading the Reformation, a dizzy spell came over him in the middle of a sermon on April 22nd of that year, forcing him actually to stop preaching. He was convinced that it was at the end, he was at the end of his life. Not only that, but he had heart problems and severe intestinal complications that really escalated the pangs of death. Of this ordeal, Luther writes the following, quote, I spent more than a week in death and hell. My entire body was in pain, and I, I still tremble. Completely abandoned by Christ, I labored under the vacillations and storms of desperation and blasphemy against God. But because of the intercession of the faithful, God began to take mercy on me and tore my soul from the depths of hell, end quote. Making matters worse, the dreaded Black Plague had entered Germany and spread into Wittenberg in that August of that year. Many people fled, fearing for their lives. Yet Luther and his beloved wife, Katie, his dear rib, as he would call her, remained. They believed it was their duty to care for the sick and dying of that town. And their house soon became a hospital where they saw many friends die. On top of that, Luther's one-year-old son, Hans, became desperately ill. So when you face the hardest year of your life, and by the way, the Pope was the least of his concerns during that time, I'll tell you. The question is, who can you turn to for comfort and strength? Where can you go? My beloved joiners, you know the answer to that to the Lord. But Luther turned to God in prayer and to his word, specifically to the book of Psalms. Luther had prayed, Luther had taught Psalms for years, and he had come to love the beloved Psalms very much. But it was Psalm 46 that became the strength of his soul in his time of trouble. Soon after, perhaps months in this year, Luther wrote his most famous hymn, a mighty fortress is our God. We heard it this morning. And that ultimately became the symbol of the Reformation. A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. Our helper, he amid the flood of mortal ills, what? Prevailing. But beloved, we want to focus our attention upon God this morning. God who hath willed his truth to triumph through us. And so we do not fear, we don't tremble, we endure. Because it is about God, who is our mighty fortress and our all-sufficient refuge in our weakest moments. He cannot be conquered. He cannot be subdued. He is our mighty and invisible God. Even though it says here, read Psalm 46, it's already been read to you. Let me tell you a little bit about the background to this psalm. Well, the background to this song of praise is really unknown to us. And while we don't know some of its details, like we're given in other of the psalms, it does seem to have to do with, uh, verse 6 tells us, with the uproar of pagan nations. The nations made an uproar. And it has something to do with wars that Yahweh brings to an end. Verse 9, he makes wars to cease. 
And so some believe that it was probably written after a military victory over, over a foreign power that had attempted to siege against Jerusalem. Notice the heading. This is part of Scripture as well. For the choir director, a psalm of the songs of the sons of Korah set to Alamoth, a song, a song. This was a song given to the sons of Korah. These were Levites who were descendants of Korah. And if you recall, they produced and performed music while the tabernacle was in the wilderness and after the construction of the temple in Jerusalem. It's hard to believe, but sometimes these choirs were sent out to battle. That's right. You would think twice about being in the choir in those days. (laughs) But because of election, the beauty of the doctrine of election, you had no choice in the matter. That's what we read in 2 Chronicles 20, for example. And back then, music was a huge part of warfare. There in 2 Chronicles 20, and if we have time, we'll go there in a little while. But in 2 Chronicles 20, King Jehoshaphat appointed men to sing to the Lord and to praise him. After hearing through the prophet Jehaziel that the Lord would be with them in battle. The prophet tells the people, do not fear, verse 17 of Second Chronicles, do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for Yahweh is with you. And that was the word from the prophet, from the Lord. Imagine for a moment hearing this psalm as a promise of victory, even before the battle is won. It is recorded in verse 22 of that chapter, when they began singing and praising, the Lord sets ambushes against their enemies. The three nations turn on each other until all have been totally annihilated. They kill each other. They get confused and they start killing each other. And as the choir arrives, singing God's praises, there are, according to verse 24, there are corpses lying on the ground. No one escaped. Not one left alive. So, my beloved, before we face the great battles of life, the great storms of life, and they will come, let this be our song. A mighty fortress is our God. Our God is with us. The beauty of the psalm is that it points us to God. It begins with God and it ends with God. God is the focus here, not the troubles. God is the focus here. Its aim is to direct you and I to God by reminding us of three essential truths concerning our God. Verses 1 through 3, God is our strong refuge. And verses 4 through 7, God is our satisfying river. And then verses 8 through 11, God is our sovereign ruler. And so the first reminder given to us in this psalm that his truths might triumph in us is that God is our strong refuge. Look at verse 1. God is our refuge and strength, a very present help in what? Trouble. Now, I know you understand this word very well. Okay, You don't have to live long to know this word, trouble. Trouble is a part of life. I know I'm speaking to the choir when I say this, but hear me out. Trouble is a part of life. As a child of God, you're not exempt. In fact, trouble will come, and you will have the opportunity to shine in the greatest, shine the greatest in those moments of great difficulty. When those hard providences of life come, when trouble comes, you will have the opportunity to shine forth the likeness of Christ, the hope that is in you. Take it one step further. How you and I handle trouble is an indication of your faith, of your faith. Is your faith in God or is it in something else or in someone else? Trouble will knock at your doorstep and it will 
it, it will either find genuine saving faith or some stranger at the door answering it. Beloved, everyone living on earth is faced with trouble. And in that way, you're not alone. We're all fallen creatures and we live in a fallen world. You know that. And as a result, we live in constant trouble. I think back to all the times that Pastor Tom taught through the book of Job. You guys remember that? And if you haven't gone through that, you need to go through that. A wonderful study. In chapter 5, verse 7, Job's friend put it this way. For man is born for trouble as sparks fly, what? Upward. All you have to do is, is be born in this world, and you're guaranteed trouble in life. Now, some say I came to the wrong class. This is not encouraging. What's going on? Where's Tom? Where's John? Come on now. Again, you're not alone. King David found himself in trouble many a times. He cried out to God in Psalm twenty-two, eleven: Be not far from me, for trouble is near, for there is none to help. Sometimes we like to think that we're in some way control, in control of, of our life and our world. And all it takes is someone invading our world and just messing it all up. We like a perfect world, quote-unquote, without any interruptions and no trouble whatsoever. I don't want to be bothered. No thank you. Pass along to the next person. But this is not reality. All it takes is some time with children before you realize that peace is really just an illusion. (laughs) Trouble is lurking just around the corner, and sometimes you hear trouble coming. And little Jeremiah, four years of age, he's got the little shirt that says, trouble is coming. (laughs) So it's not like he didn't give me a heads up. I can't fault the guy. Sometimes you can't hear trouble coming, right? What about marriage? Uh Uh-oh. Listen to the Apostle Paul in 1 Corinthians 7.58. But if you marry... You have not sinned. Oh, that's good. And if a virgin marries, marries, she has not sinned. Yet such will have trouble in this life. And I'm trying to spare you. That's not my words. That's the Apostle Paul, 1 Corinthians 7.58. Trouble there means to be pressed together, or be under pressure. Why is that so in marriage? Well, because you have two fallen people who are placed together and trouble will inevitably follow, right? Can I hear the ladies say amen? (laughs) You don't have to be married long to realize this. Now, don't get me wrong. Marriage is a gift from the Lord. Amen to that. Yet even the greatest gifts that God gives to us, there is going to be trouble. Jesus said it himself, John 16, 33, These things I've spoken to you so that in me you may have peace. In the world you have tribulation. Or another translation, trouble. But take courage, I have overcome the world. So my beloved, we expect trouble. It's not something new. We expect trouble in our family. We expect trouble from our friends. We expect trouble in our jobs. We expect trouble at school and even in the world. It's just all over. That's not new to us. It's just the way it is in life, in a fallen world. And if you think you're the only one going through trouble, you haven't been looking around lately. Everyone faces it. Maybe you're not on the prayer chain, and that's why you haven't come across it as much as you should. There's trouble all the time. The question still remains, who can you turn to? Where do you find comfort and hope? Look at verse 1. God. That's who you can turn to. That's exactly where we need to go to find comfort and hope. God. 
We go to God, who alone is our refuge, strength, and help. Refuge, strength, and help. These are the three key words that describe what God is to all believers, all who know God, all who come to a saving knowledge of the truth, have embraced the gospel, have loved Christ Jesus. They understand who God is. God is a refuge. What does this mean? Well, it is the place where we find shelter, shelter from the storm of life's troubles. It is God and God alone who provides such a place for us. The place is in him. He alone is the one we flee to. And as our refuge, God is a strong shelter from danger, an unconquerable fortress, a a walled city where protection is found. It is found in God and God alone. Nothing in the universe can be comparable, can be a comparable refuge like our God. Some may think that if you have enough money, perhaps you will find refuge in that. But money cannot shield you against heartache, can't shield you from the failure and sin and the disease or the disaster that occurs every day in the world. Some think, well, if I have enough friends and family, you'll find refuge in in them. But I'm sorry to say that there's no certainty with friends and even with the closest of relationships, our family. These could be easily swept, swept away. Martin Luther knew this too well, so he wrote in his hymn, Let goods and kindred go, this mortal life also. A body they may kill, God's truth abideth still. His kingdom is what? Forever. So who was going to provide stability in the midst of discouraging circumstances? Who provides that for us? It's God alone, right? God alone. That's refuge. What about strength? What does this mean? In Hebrew, it's the word oz. It is strength and might combined. Strength and might combined. It's the strength that upholds you and and enables you to stand through times of trouble. It's what amazes us when we look at another person who has faith in God and is being sustained by God. Given that strength that every stride that person takes through that moment of life that you and I, I couldn't imagine how that would be to go through such times. Paul wanted the saints at Ephesus to know the surpassing greatness of his power. Ephesians 1.19, that same power that raised Christ from the dead, from the grave, and brought him to his coronation. He wanted them to know the availability of that greatness, surpassing greatness of his power made available to all the saints. That's to us in the New Testament. But what about the Old Testament saints? Did they know and experience the power of God? What do you think? They saw it, right? You read about it. In fact, they witnessed the power of God against all odds. Turn over to 2 Kings 18 for a moment. 2 Kings chapter 18, just for a moment. I want you to see this for yourself. There we read of King Hezekiah, chapter 18. Hezekiah becomes king at 25 and he reigns for 29 years. Hezekiah was a good king, trying to do what is right. He removed the high places. He destroyed all idols, including the bronze serpent that the people began to worship. It is said of him that in 2 Kings verse 5, 18 verse 5, he trusted in the Lord. This is King Hezekiah. He trusted in the Lord. This is what set him apart from all other kings of Judah. He trusted in the Lord. He trusted God even in the midst of a severe national crisis. Look down in verse 13. Now in the 14th year of King Hezekiah, Sennacherib, king of Assyria, came up against all the fortified cities of Judah and seized them. Stop right there. Assyria has a fit with Hezekiah for invading the Philistines and not paying tribute to Assyria. Assyria wants part of the money. Assyria steps in and leaves Jerusalem as the only city intact, destroys all other fortified cities of Judah, 
except Jerusalem, destroying most of all the cities, especially in the area of the Shephelah. Hezekiah tries to pay off the Assyrian king with 11 tons of silver and one ton of gold. But does the king of Assyria take this money? No. Sennacherib wants Hezekiah to surrender, humiliate the man. So the Assyrian king sends a small army to intimidate Judah. The command in charge of this small army asks Hezekiah, Hezekiah's officials, these questions, look down in verse 19, right in the middle of verse 19. Now on whom do you rely? That's the question that's thrown out to them. On whom do you rely? In other words, what is this confidence that you have? In verse 20 there, right? Verse 19, what is this confidence that you have? What is this confidence that you have? Now on whom do you rely? Verse 20. Surely it's not in some other army. You have no other army that can help you. We, the Assyrians, are far too great. Surely it cannot be your God, for he has told us to destroy you. And here we have a king who trusted in the Lord. The Lord his strength. As Spurgeon has said it, God is our all-sufficient, unconquerable, honorable, and emboldening strength is our God. I believe Hezekiah would agree with that third word that we see in our psalm as well. Turn back to Psalm 46. Not only refuge and strength, but God is a very present help in trouble. What does help mean? It means support or assistance for one who is weak, vulnerable, and helpless. Weak, vulnerable, and helpless. Is this you today? Weak, vulnerable, and feeling a little helpless? What the psalmist here is proclaiming, look, we can survive this time of trouble because God is our help. We can endure this. We can get past this. Not because we did it and we got ourselves here and we can do it. We just pulled together. No, (laughs) it's because God is our help. That's why we can endure this time of trouble. Don't believe the lie that the help comes from the government, that the help comes from others in charge. The help comes from God and God alone. You remind yourself of that every day. We endure the work week because God is our help. Amen? When you need God's help, you can count on him. It is not that God helps us some of the time, right? He is a continual, ever-present help to us. Is this not so comforting to you and I to read? Again, these are the eternal truths that are to be internalized that we are to remind ourselves every single day of the week. God is our refuge, strength, and help. Because he is our refuge, strength, and help, what then is our response? Look at verse 2. Therefore we will not what? Come on. Therefore we will not what? Fear. We will not fear. But the psalmist is not done yet. He wants to go to the extreme, okay? And this is where he takes us, okay? Verses 2 and 3. Though the earth should change, though the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, though its waters roar and foam, though the mountains quake at its swelling pride. Just think about that for a moment. This is mass destruction. This is an undoing of creation. And will you at that time have confidence in God? Will you at that time trust in God just like King Hezekiah had to trust in the Lord even against the mighty powers of Assyria who was knocking at his doorstep ready to overtake him and his people? 
even if this world were to fall apart, will you trust in God? So not only is God is our, the one who provides security and our sure defense at all times, but he is, according to verses 4 through 7, as we will read next, he is our satisfying river. Notice the contrast that's happening here, okay? Just from reading the extreme mass chaos, though the earth should change, mountains and seas and all that, the mass chaos in verses 2 and 3 that is followed up in verse 4 by serenity when it says, there is a river whose streams may glad the city of God, the holy dwelling places of the Most High. (laughs) And if you're hearing this, you're like, okay, so where is this river and where do I go to find it, right? Where is this river and where can I go to find it? That's a great question, and I'm glad you asked that. Turn over to Psalm 36, verses 7 through 8. This, too, is Psalm of David, 36. Psalm of David, 36, verses 7 through 8. How precious is your loving kindness, O God! And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. They drink their fill of the abundance of your house, and you give them to drink of the river of your delights. They drink their fill. You give them to drink of the river of your delights. Those who take refuge in God drink their fill of God, of all that God bestows. He gives them drink of the river of your delights. That's literally the drink the river of your Edens, the river of your Edens. In the same way, the river that flowed out of Eden provided life for the garden. From what we read in chapter 2 of Genesis, verse 10, God is the one who provides abundant life of love, peace, joy, and communion with him. How wonderful is that? Is this not what our Lord said in John chapter 10, verse 9? I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved. He will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it what? More abundantly, abundantly. That's in John. Fast forward to the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, beyond the things which are to the things that will take place after these things. And there in Revelation 21, we read that God will bring down his holy city, the new Jerusalem. Again, another plug, if you haven't read, gone through Pastor Tom's book of Job, you need to go through. But if you haven't gone through Pastor John's book of Revelation, you need to go to that. Okay? You need to listen to these guys, okay? And I'm just asking you to listen to this right now. But you need to listen to these guys in terms of the, the whole series of Job and the whole series of Revelation. There in Revelation 21, God will bring down his holy city, the new Jerusalem, having the glory of God, and will set it upon the new heavens and the new earth from its place on high. And this is where all the saints, Old Testament, New Testament saints, will live. This is that promised time of redemption and restoration, and all nature groans and hopes for, with great expectation where the whole creation will be set free from its slavery to corruption into the freedom of the glory of the children of God, Romans 8.21. Everything will be glorified, even nature itself. This is what Jesus spoke of in John 14, verses 1 through 3. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in me. Believe also in me. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have not told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. All believers will live with Christ in the Father's house. As 1 Thessalonians 4.17, So we shall always be with the Lord. Amen? Amen. Ever enjoying the glory of God, basking in it, reflecting upon it every day. 
for all eternity. That will be our eternal state, our final destiny, our everlasting and eternal condition. That's our home. This is not our home. That is our home. And that's what John testifies when he writes there in Revelation 21 of the New Jerusalem. Listen to these verses 3 and 4 of that chapter. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the tabernacle of God is among men, and he will dwell among them, and they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them, and he will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and there will no longer be any death, there will no longer be any mourning or crying or pain. The first things have passed away. Then the Lord God will say in verse 6, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will give to the one who thirsts from the spring of the water of life without cost. Notice the I is emphatic there. I, I and no one else will do this. Verse 7, he who overcomes will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. Something that's radically different in this new heaven and new earth is that there is no sea. There is no sea, but there is a river. There is a river. Chapter 22, verse 1, the very next chapter. Then he showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. And in the middle of its street, on either side of the river, was the tree of life, bearing 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Can you imagine this? Verse 3, there will no longer be any curse. And the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it. And his bondservants will serve him. They will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. And there will no longer be any night, and they will not have need of the light of a lamp, nor the light of the sun, because the Lord God will illumine them, and they will reign forever and ever. Notice how John's vision at the very end points us back to God. God as our satisfying river. He placed a life-giving river in the Garden of Eden, and will place a river of the water of life in the new Jerusalem. But it will all point back to him because he is the source of that life. It all comes back to God. See, that life has a way of transforming the troubles of the day into songs of praise for all eternity. You remember the words that we read in Psalm 36? How precious is your loving kindness, O God. And the children of men take refuge in the shadow of your wings. Turn back to Psalm 46. There is a river whose streams make glad the city of God. We again find refuge in the shadow of the Almighty. He is the source of all comfort, strength, and life-giving water. We need to overcome life's greatest storms. We find our satisfaction in God and God alone who provides his city where we can dwell. He is in the city. He himself is the city. Verses 5 says in 6, God is in the midst of her. She will not be moved. God will help her when morning dawns. Sometimes you experience those long nights, right? And then dawn comes and then you say to yourself, I made it through the night. To know that the morning dawn comes. You have endured only because God has brought you out through that time and delivered you. What does verse 6 tell us? The nations made an uproar. The kingdoms tottered. He raised his voice and the earth melted. All because of his presence, not even the forces of nature or even the nations are a threat to those who dwell in God. So, my beloved, can you be satisfied in him? Can you be satisfied in the Lord? Is he enough for you? Drink of the abundance of his love and care, my beloved. 
Then you will say with the psalmist in verse 7, the Lord of hosts is with us. The Lord of hosts is with us. God has the power to subdue the universe to himself, and yet at the same time, he's the most loving father that provides a strong hold. For us as New Testament believers, the Lord is with us through his spirit, right? Jesus said in John 14, 16 through 19, I will ask the Father and he will give you another helper that he may be with you forever. That is the spirit of truth. The beautiful doctrine that we were reminded of this morning, God comes and makes his abode in you, right? God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the triune God coming to dwell in you. The Spirit of God reminding you of truth, all that Christ has spoken to you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you after a little while, while the world will, will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will also live. What a tremendous reality and truth that God is with us. That changes everything. Again, just as John mentioned this morning, Pastor John mentioned it this morning, doctrine is everything. If you believe this doctrine, this teaching that comes from God's word, that he is with you, it changes everything. It changes everything. Because you know you're not alone. And you hang on to God's dear promises and his truths in his word. Not only does the psalmist want us to look at God as our refuge, as our satisfying river, but thirdly, he is our sovereign ruler. Look at verse 8. Come, behold the works of the Lord who has wrought desolations in the earth. Behold the works of the Lord. What does that mean? How so? And what what does he say about God? In other words, the psalmist here is telling us, look at what he does. Look at what God has done. Know that he is sovereign over all. That God is most sovereign. We know that it will all work out. We know that. We know that God has got this. We know and can trust him for everything, right? Right? We can. The outcome will be peace and the exaltation of our God on high. But the process will be judgment. Judgment is coming. Look at God. Look at his works. But know that he is one who will bring about judgment. Behold his works. He wrought desolations in the earth. That is amazing things on the earth. The Lord brings destruction. He causes horror and astonishment among the earth. I mean, when, when, what do you think it did for the surrounding nations when three nations come up against Jerusalem in Second Chronicles 20? They all come against Jerusalem, and they kill each other, and there's no one left alive. Do you think that scares people to know that God does this and is behind Jerusalem, behind his people? Oh, you betcha. There is fear. He brought desolations in the earth, causing horror and astonishment among the earth. He makes wars to cease. The Lord brings wars to an end. Lord, uh, literally, he makes wars take a sabbatical, causing them to cease. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. That is, the Lord destroys any weapon the enemy may try to use, and he breaks it in two. It's amazing. If you're you know, thinking about Revelation, you know, like at the very end, what do they do? After experiencing a thousand years of his reign, what do they do? What does the world do? They pick a fight with God. They think that they could actually win. He breaks the bow and cuts the spear in two. All of this. And he burns the chariots with with fire. Psalm 20, verse 7. Some trust in chariots and some in horses. But we trust. We're different, okay? Everybody puts their stock and how many horses you have and how many chariots you have and what damage you can do and all the things you can do with chariots, right? But we trust in whom? In the name of the Lord our God. That's whom we trust. After all, the battle belongs to the Lord, right? It belongs to him. Turn over to Second Chronicles 20. I'm going to take you there just for a moment there. Second Chronicles chapter 20. Okay, Second Kings 
18, I took you there, now it's 2 Chronicles 20, okay? 2 Chronicles chapter 20. A bit of Old Testament review here. Okay, 2 Kings 18, Hezekiah. Here we have King Jehoshaphat. He sets judges in Judah to rule righteously. He does well most of his days as king, except the very end. But it is said of him that he set his heart to seek God. 2 Chronicles 19, verse 3. Hezekiah trusts in the Lord. King Jehoshaphat, he set his heart to seek God. He set his heart to seek God. And we read in 2 Chronicles chapter 20, beginning with verse 1, now it came about after this that the sons of Moab and the sons of Ammon, together with some of the Maonites, came to make war against Jehoshaphat. Those are the three kingdoms that go and pick a fight with Jehoshaphat, right? And then what happens, okay? Jehoshaphat was afraid, verse 30, and turned his attention to seek the Lord and proclaimed a fast throughout all Judah. They fasted. So Judah gathered together, verse 4, to seek help from the Lord. I mean, three nations come and pick a fight with you. You go to prayer and fasting, prayer and fasting, to seek help from the Lord. Jehoshaphat prays to the Lord. He says in verse 6, O Lord, the God of our fathers, are you not God in the heavens? Are you not ruler over all the kings of the nations? Power and might are in your hands so that no one can stand against you. Verse 12, jump down to verse 12. Oh, our God, will you not judge them? For we are powerless before this great multitude who are coming against us. Nor do we know what to do, but our eyes are on you. All Judah was standing before the Lord with their infants, their wives, and their children. Everybody's here. Then, 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 verse 14. In the midst of the assembly, the Spirit of the Lord came upon a prophet, Jehaziel, the son of Zechariah, the son of Benaiah, and the son of Jehiel, and the son of Mataniah, the Levite of the sons of Asaph. And he said, listen, listen, everyone, all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem and King Jehoshaphat, you too, listen to this. Thus says the Lord to you, do not fear or be dismayed because of this great multitude, for the battle is not yours, but whom's? God's. Verse 17, you need not fight in this battle. Station yourselves. Stand and see the salvation of the Lord on your behalf, O Judah and Jerusalem. Do not fear or be dismayed. Tomorrow, go out to face them, for the Lord is with you. What do you hear? After you hear that, what do you do? Jehoshaphat bowed his head and his face to the ground. We've heard from the Lord. And all Judah and the inhabitants of Jerusalem fell down before the Lord, worshiping the Lord. The Lord has answered our cry. Get the choir ready. Verse 19, the Levites. That's right. They're part of the battle. The Levites from the sons of the Kohathites, of the sons of the Korites, stand up to praise the Lord God of Israel with a very loud voice. So the king hears the prophet, hears from the Lord. They worship the Lord. And he's got a word to the people. Listen to me, O Judah, inhabitants of Jerusalem, verse 20. Put your trust in the Lord your God, and you will be established. Put your trust in his prophets and succeed. That is to say, remember what he has spoken. Remember his word. Remember his promises. Trust in the Lord. Do not be afraid. Do not fear or be dismayed because the battle is not yours, it's God's. So what will become of us? Where will we go? Who will lead us? Will our enemy defeat us? Beloved, bank on the promises of God. Bank on his glory. Bank on his reputation. Put your eyes on him, our sovereign ruler. There's another message, though, left for us. Psalm 46. It's coming. Verse 10. Cease striving and know 
that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Most translations have be still. But that term in Hebrew means to cease and desist. Think for a moment of a parent separating two struggling children and saying to them, quit it, stop it. You've never been in that situation before, right? No. I'm the only one. I know. I know. Martin Luther writes in his hymn, A Mighty Fortress is Our God. Did we in our own strength confide? Our striving would be what? Losing. You always lose when you strive against the Almighty. When you're troubled in your soul when you give way to being dismayed, when you give way to worry and fretting and being anxious, you lose every single time. In fact, you're going to lose sleep. You're going to lose sleep out of it. In other parts of Scripture, it literally means let your hand sink down. Here the psalmist is saying, submit to God, for resistance is useless. In other words, quit trying to do it on your own. Quit trying to do it on your own. Trust in his sovereignty. You may ask, on what basis, on what grounds? Well, let's begin with this. God is God. And you and I are not. Start with that. And that should be suffice. God is God. And you and I are not. Simply know that he is God. Know that he is who he says he is. This might help you to apply cease striving in your life. Cease striving means cease striving means that you keep quiet in your words. The easiest way for you to sin is through your mouth. You know that? Yeah. There is no need to complain about the circumstances. How many times do I tell my children about this? No need for you to complain. It does nothing. It does nothing. But even adults, we complain too, right? We struggle with that. See, striving means that you guard your actions as well, not only your words, but your actions, so as not to oppose the sovereignty of God. Trust and wait on the Lord. Go back to the Old Testament. Read about Sarah. Does she wait on the Lord? No, I've got a better plan. This is how we'll get the promised kid into, into gear, you know? Now we have a whole conflict that's on the basis of just that decision of not being patient and waiting on the Lord. Cease striving means also that you cultivate your mind and heart with the thoughts of God, and so you fill your heart and your mind with the thoughts of God, with reading His Word, listening to the sermons and the eternal truths that are being exalted and being brought before you each Sunday, each time you open up God's Word. And there you will be encouraged. There you will be admonished. There you will be reminded. God is in control. He is sovereign. Spurgeon writes, His being God is a sufficient reason why we should be still before Him. In no wise murmuring or objecting or opposing, but calmly and humbly submitting to Him. End quote. Regardless of how you and I respond to God, God makes it clear that he will be exalted. So if you, if you get this lesson, praise the Lord. But even if you don't get this lesson, guess what? God is still going to be God. He says, I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. He will be exalted among the nations and among all those on earth. Not one molecule will rebel against his exaltation. We have R.C. Sproul to remind us of that. And when all is said and done, the greatest truth in this psalm is repeated to us once more in verse 11. The Lord of hosts is with us. The God of Jacob is our stronghold. 
Just think about that. Whether you are at the highest or you are at the lowest, know that God is with you. It is his providence, his loving providence that guides you despite your wanderings, even when you enter into that valley of the shadow of death. Know that God is with you. So my beloved, we will always face trouble. But God wants us to focus on him, not on our troubles. He wants us to place our confidence in him and in him alone. Even in the most chaotic times of life, in the midst of such raging storms, you know that you can place your hope, your trust in him. You can count on God. And there's no reason for you to fear. And absolutely no reason for you to complain either. We're not called to fear, but we are called to trust. We can face trouble knowing that God is our strong refuge our satisfying river, and our sovereign ruler. This is our hope in this life, and this is my hope for the saints and join heirs. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for taking us through your word to remind us of your eternal truths. Write them upon our hearts. We ask that we may be reminded each moment of this week that you are with us. Help us as we grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ that we might Put the likeness of Christ on display and make believable, manifest in a tangible way the truths and the reality of the gospel. And as we proclaim these eternal truths to those around us, may you bless our efforts that more may come to know the one true God whom we love. Even though we have not yet seen you, we love you, we believe in you. We look forward to being with you for all eternity. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.